Greetings and welcome to Harvard Islamica, the podcast of the Al-Walid bin Talal Islamic Studies program at Harvard University. I'm Tariq Masood, the faculty director of the program and a professor at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. In this podcast, our executive director, Harry Bastarmajian, and our program coordinator, Miriam Qadhimi, will bring to you the latest exciting developments in the field of Islamic studies from scholars at Harvard and beyond. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, which you can find on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. To learn more about our programs, follow us on Twitter at Harvard Islamic. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions at our email address, islamicstudies at harvard.edu. Please enjoy this episode of Harvard Islamica. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Mariam Kazmi. And I'm Harry Bastramajan. This is the second in a series of four interviews with former directors of the Prince Edward bin Talal Islamic Studies program at Harvard University. In this episode, we hear from Roy Muttahida, Gurney Research Professor of History, about how he began studying Arabic and Persian at Harvard College, his career as a historian, his memories of his mentors, and his reflections on some of his best-known publications. Roy Parviz Muttahida was born in New York City in 1940. He graduated from Harvard College with an A.B. in History in 1960 and earned a second B.A. in Persian and Arabic from Cambridge University. He then went on to earn his Ph.D. at Harvard under Sir Hamilton Gibb and Richard Fry and was elected a junior fellow in the Harvard Society of Fellows. Professor Matahedda began his teaching career at Princeton, where he earned tenure and was one of the first MacArthur Fellows. He returned to Harvard in 1986 as Professor of Islamic History where his many accomplishments have included directing the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, founding the Harvard Middle East and Islamic Review, and founding the Awalid bin Talal Islamic Studies Program. We began by asking Professor Mutahida how he entered Islamic Studies, and about his experiences first as an undergraduate and later as a graduate student at Harvard. Okay, well, my father was uh, Iranian, <laughs> and uh, by origin, and uh, as a child, I always uh, heard him joking and uh, la- laughing with his Iranian friends. And I very much wanted to learn Persian. And my father told me, if you do uh, medieval Persian, you must have very good Arabic. So uh, I came to Harvard intending to learn both Persian and Arabic though uncertain that I would make it my central interest. Um, I uh, started on my first year at Harvard doing an advanced course on the comparative anatomy of vertebrates because I sort of wanted to be a biologist. (laughs) And I also started on first year Arabic. Um, I have to admit that it was much easier uh, much easier to study Arabic with a single book than to go to the laboratory <laughs> day and night and mm-hmm. dissect animals. So uh, I uh, drifted into really into Arabic and Persian study. And I loved Arabic. I still love Arabic. But it, it, Arabic teaching was crazy. The first year of Arabic, uh, well, first year of Arabic, we had an old-fashioned grammar. uh, And uh, 
the teacher who uh, was William Polk, who was not the slightest bit interested in the subject, uh, we, we met three times a week and he said, uh, any questions about that chapter? And then he said, read the next chapter. <laughs> so theoretically, we, we finished a quite uh, a good Arabic, uh, introduction to Arabic in, before Christmas for the uh, uh, winter holidays and he said well now you have arabic we will read in the next semester some of the thousand and one nights and uh so one of the uh, these enormously difficult poems <laughs> pre-islamic poems and uh we did indeed go through it but the mu'alaqat are full of what are called hapax legomenon uh the, the words that don't occur anywhere else <laughs> so we had to memorize more or less the translation in order to pass the exam but um somehow or another i i, I learned <laughs> i learned classical arabic su sufficiently um but um my uh I was so shy and that was terrible. I, I should have gone over and over again. I was told that I should go, you know, uh, abroad and study with people. And I was too shy. I really was too shy. I just, I knew I, I could pass my courses at Harvard and, uh, and was very lacking in foreign experience. <laughs> I loved history. So I became a history major, uh, but that meant that I was a student of Sir Hamilton Gibb, who had come just a year before me or two years before me uh, to Harvard. Uh, he was a magnificent scholar, uh, uh, but um, very uh, forbidding. Uh, I, I, uh, Gibb was a sort of Olympian figure. And uh, I, uh, I was enormously impressed by him. Uh, and uh, he was uh, kind to me, but I think he had a certain suspicion of Iranians or partial Iranians like me. And so while he invited almost all of his students for tea at his house, I was never invited. <laughs> I, oh wow! I don't know why, huh. uh, but and, but anyway, um, and then my second year at Harvard, I started Persian, and of course it, it was Richard Fry who was my teacher, and Richard Fry thought he should teach several Iranian languages together, so um, the first year Persian was a very strange mixture of uh, references to ancient Iranian languages and contemporary Persian. Uh, I must say I uh, was fortunate enough to take a, a, a summer course in spoken Persian at Columbia uh, where I really learned to speak Persian, although my Persian remains to this day not fully native. <laughs> anyway, uh, Fry and Gibb, unfortunately, did not get on terribly well, 
and um, each of them would ask me where my loyalties lay. <laughs> this embarrassed me a great deal. <laughs> but anyway, I studied uh, long. I studied for a long time with both of them. Uh, I wrote my. I was a history student. I did. Uh, the uh, required number of courses in history with great pleasure. I loved, I loved, uh, for example, English history. I enjoyed so much. Um, but um, in the end, uh, I wrote a, a, a thesis, senior thesis under William Polk, P-O-L-K, who later went to the University of Chicago. Um, um, the thesis was about a medieval Persian Sufi uh, and uh, how the biography of this Sufi showed about a lot about the social structure. Uh, uh, the social structure of Iran in the late 10th and early 11th century in the province of Fars, where Shiraz is. Mm -hmm. And this man's uh, shrine is still there in Shiraz. Um, anyway, uh, I, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly, but I realized I was learning Persian and Arabic too slowly. So uh, I, first I was sent on a year to travel and do nothing. The last <laughs> assignment I ever, ever fulfilled. <laughs> and then... Uh, I went to Cambridge in England and did part two, the final part of the tripos in Arabic and Persian. Uh, 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 got a very respectable grade. So you went to Cambridge. Uh, this was after yeah. your, th was this before or after you, you spent some time? Because you spent some time in Afghanistan too. So yes, that's, that's the other thing that's really interesting here yes. about all three of you have this, this sort of, Central South Asian connection here, right? Um, I graduated a little bit young. I was 19. So um, I uh, was fortunate enough to get uh, this lovely fellowship to travel and do nothing <laughs> called the Shaw Traveling Fellowship. And so uh, I went, I decided I wanted to sp spend some time in the Middle East. I'd never seen the Middle East. I, so I went to uh, Egypt for a couple of months, and then I went to Afghanistan. Afghanistan was remarkable. So was Egypt in its way. But Afghanistan was remarkable. It was really in the 19th century. The, uh, the roads kept washing out. I remember standing at the edge of a road as I was trying to travel, from, uh, travel down to Kabul from uh, Bamiyan. The, uh, and... Uh, the road had washed out and people were standing by the side throwing stones in rather, rather, rather unorganized way, way until, they, until they would make enough uh, high, high land for the bus to go through. Um, it, was a, it was incredible. It was incredible. I mean, there was there a... a there were scenes that looked exactly out of a Persian miniature of the 16th or 17th century. Uh, and um, the, uh, uh, let's see, I uh, graduated from Harvard in 
1960, and this was 60-61. Uh, uh, anyway, I sort of bonded with the Middle East more strongly after that experience. I, I felt, uh, you know, that the uh, yeah, this was uh, a lost world that I I liked, <laughs> and um, so uh, and uh, the uh, I I met Afghan mullahs, I met Afghan sheep shearers, all kinds of people in different professions. I spoke my baby Persian, and uh, th God bless them, Afghans understand. Iranian Persian well. So uh, I had lots of interesting personal interactions. Um, when I got back to Harvard, as I said, when I got back to Harvard. I just have a question. You didn't go to yeah, Iran. Sure. You didn't go to Iran. No, according to Iranian law, I'm an Iranian citizen. And uh, I, would have, I was the age to be drafted. And uh, so I couldn't go to Iran. I, I only went to Iran when I was uh, in my uh, late 30s, uh, too old to be of any use as a soldier. So anyway, so um, no, I wanted to go to Iran. No, I was very interested in, in all of the Middle East. I went to uh, uh, Karbala and, uh, in, in Iraq and um, I, uh, did the pilgrimage. Uh, I did, uh, anyway, I, 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 this was a wonderful year. I went to a lot of places. Uh, and um, then I came back and started, as I said, as a history. I have no degrees in anything except history, if people should know. Oh, then I went, I'm sorry, for a year to Cambridge, where I did the uh, part two of the tripos in Persian and Arabic. And that was really, really good for me. I had to do an Arabic and a Persian composition every week. Uh, and uh, uh, although, uh, although my teachers were not up to correcting it, I mean, one of them once said to me, not quite the style of Jahis. I don't know how, how, uh, how I could write uh, write an essay in a style a style equal to Jaws, but anyway, I, uh, they had I, they had high expectations for the students. At Cambridge. I worked like a dog. I loved it. I loved my year in Cambridge, but anyway, I got a, a first on the exam and a prize, the E. G. Brown Prize. Uh, then I went. Uh, back to Harvard and uh, in the history department did a PhD and did four fields of history. Uh, sometimes people do three fields of history in, a, in an oriental language, but I did four fields of history, including Byzantine, early modern England, <laughs> ancient Iran, ancient Near East. Anyway, um, and of course, Islamic history. Um, I. I, I I liked history. I loved it, actually. I feel myself to be more an historian than anything else. Uh, but um, uh, as, I, uh, as I said, I was pulled between Professor Gibb and Professor uh, Fry. Uh, and at one point, I took several obscure Iranian languages 
with uh, Professor Fry, uh, Sogdian, and so on and so forth. I still have my Sogdian grammar. <laughs> I, don't I don't understand the word of it now. But <laughs> anyway, uh, but I realized that in a lot of these languages, all that we had were uh, sort of uh, religious literature and about a, enough to fill a single volume. I really, I was really an historian. I wanted to understand society and people and so on. And you couldn't do that from this kind of material. So at the end of my second year, I did Pahlavi. I did a lot of Pahlavi. I still retain some Pahlavi. Uh, at the end of my second year, uh, uh, Fry said, I've arranged for you to go to Holland and work with Gonda. Gonda was the great, greatest Sanskritist of his time. According to some people, I don't know. Oh, he was one of the greatest. Yeah, Jan Honda. Yeah. Yeah, Honda. Sorry. Honda. Yeah. Honda. Honda. Yeah. Dutch is full of those. <laughs> and he gave me an application I was supposed to fill, and then disappear for two years in Holland. <laughs> and I took the application and. Uh, 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 did not fill it. <laughs> I took it from him. Did not fill it. I. Uh, well, he's an Indologist. Indologist. That's Indologist, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he. Well, Fry was of the traditional Iranian studies field, where you had to master uh, Sanskrit in order to understand all later Indo-European languages and uh, religion and so on and so forth. Anyway. Uh, so after doing obscure Iranian languages with Fry, I, uh, uh, I was more or less declared that I was going to be uh, a, a specialist in the Islamic period. And, uh, and uh, I, I, uh, I, I, I did a lot, of, as I said, on ancient Iran. Uh, for my uh, uh, PhD uh, qualifying exams and everything. Anyway, uh, so studying with Gibb was a challenging business because he knew Arabic so well and he was such a, a learned man. And uh, he was also forbidding a little bit in his manner. I mean, not that he tended to be off-putting, but he was forbidding in his manner. And, and then suddenly, after his, um, af after uh, two and a half years studying with him, he had a stroke. And um, I was more or less uh, thrown on the mercy <laughs> of, of uh, what remained of Middle Eastern studies. I have to explain to you, things like language laboratories, when I first started, didn't exist. There were uh, even there, later. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there were uh, there was a, a building next to uh, the supermarket uh, in, in Harvard, the, the Broadway supermarket, uh, where on they had a tape recorder and they had some tapes of Persian and Arabic, but nobody ever went there. <laughs> Not, not the least reason, because nobody was taking care of the place. Nobody could give you tapes appropriate for your level of study. So I learned, I learned Persian and Arabic really as dead languages. Uh, uh, and uh, fortunately, thanks to my uh, 
Iranian friends and so on and so forth, I was able to learn spoken uh, Persian uh, to some extent. I'm still far, at 80 years old, I'm still far from perfect. Anyway, uh, um, but Arabic, Arabic, uh, Arabic was very challenging, and I liked, uh, I liked the way uh, it was taught. Uh, and um, so I also studied with Anna Marie Schimmel her first years here, and in fact she sort of seconded me to be her kind of assistant. And I helped her with her shopping and her, her paying her electric bill and all sorts of things <laughs> until Wheeler Thaxton appeared. And then I uh, said to Wheeler, you're, you're on a Marie official chaperone or whatever. <laughs> and I'm good. I, I have to write my thesis. Uh, so I wrote my thesis. I was elected to something called the Society of Fellows. And uh, that made me uh, relatively comfort, comfortable. It was a good, good fellowship in my, uh, for three years of my graduate career. I wrote my thesis and I wrote the article on the Abbasids for the Cambridge History of Iran. Uh, that was in 68 or something. So this is, uh, I was really too young to be given that assignment, but I did my best anyway. So um, uh, I uh, then at a, at a certain point they said to me, um, I was teaching part co-teaching a course, and they said to me, you know, you're going to be given an assistant professorship. Uh, but then suddenly at the last year uh, of my uh, junior fellowship, they said, well, we're going to appoint both you and Richard Bullitt, and at the end, we'll choose between you. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> I, I immediately called up a friend, Carl Brown, who taught at Princeton University, and said, Carl, do you have a job for me? And he said, sure. So uh, I then went to Princeton for 16 years. Professor Mutahida told us more about his advisors and how he came to establish himself as a historian while working with an Arabist, Sir Hamilton Gibb, and a Persianist, Richard Fry. He began by talking about Professor Gibb. Well, he was very interested in uh, Saladin for a long time, and one of his last books is on Saladin, whom he admired as a chival chivalric uh, medieval gentleman <laughs> very much. I always wonder if his fellow Scottish uh, writer, uh, uh, Sir Walter Scott, that might have influenced his fascination with Saladin, because Sir Walter Scott also admired Saladin. Anyway, um, um, he was Olympian in stature. He was an enormously tall uh, man. I mean, for me, who is rather slight, in height, <laughs> he seemed enormously tall, and he, he was sort of pillar-like, and uh, I was just terribly shy around him. I, I think as all all his students were, except Ira Lapidus and um, Mary Catherine Bateson, uh, the daughter of 
Margaret Mead, uh, who went on to write her thesis under him, they, for some reason, were able to talk to him and he loved it. I was too shy <laughs> by far, by far. But, but he, he, he uh, appreciated my uh, good efforts. And um, as we went on and on uh, up in years of Arabic, he saw that I was really dedicated to the subject. I took his seminar in Arabic poetry three times <laughs> because I had so much to learn from it. He was a deeply moral man. Uh, reading what he writes, you see this moral element. And one of the things he liked about Saladin was that Saladin seems to have kept his word all the time. <laughs> he never he never made a false promise or anything. Um, and and Gibbs saw that the sort of moral dimension of history. Uh, perhaps it would be a little bit less in fashion today, but not, never mind. I mean, uh, if you understand it, it still doesn't make it bad history. Um, he insisted that he was first and foremost an Arabist. And of course, his little history of Arabic literature, which he wrote when, I don't know, in his late 20s or something, is a gorgeous book. It's a lovely book. Everybody can benefit from it, re reading it now. I mean, so that's that's important. I mean, is the, so you know the the that um, Gibb first and foremost viewed himself as an Arabist. You first and foremost. I, I I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but from what I understand, you think of yourself first and foremost as a historian. Yes, that's right. That's and so I guess uh, you know, as a student, <laughs> how did you see yourself? Maybe sort of delineating yourself from him. I guess right, you know. Right. Right. Well, I took, uh, you were allowed in, uh, if you did uh, Arabic seriously, to, to do only three fields of history for your generals. I insisted on doing four fields like a regular, uh, a regular uh, history student. But uh, you have to have a strong philological basis to work properly with these pre-modern texts. After he had a stroke, I went to see him, and uh, it, it was tragic. Uh, this man who had uh, had such a wonderful feeling, both for the English language and for Arabic, uh, uh, was just barely understandable. He was understandable. And he, in fact, did create, cre finish his Saladin book at that time. But um, it, 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 the, uh, it, a lot of his uh, uh, learning was beyond reach to him, hmm. tragically, very sad. Uh, but uh, it gave me a standard for the study of Arabic and history, if he, even if he didn't claim to be a historian, and history that, that uh, is very hard to live up to. And I, I treasure it. One has to give credit to Fry the pioneer. He wanted to study Iran, but uh, they told him, well, we don't have proper Iranian studies here, so study Sanskrit, <laughs> which he did for a couple of years. 
And then they told him to go to uh, London and study Persian in London, which he did. Uh, so he, he, he bounced around. Uh, his, um, he was enthusiastic. He was interested in the Iranian heritage as a whole and knew all sorts of ancient languages, uh, which I studied with him in part. <laughs> uh, and uh, so there was, of course, uh, Iranian studies is a philological field as well as the historical field. And um, he was more of a philologist than of a historian, but he did write some good history, yeah. Richard Fry wanted to meet me to turn into a Persianist. And uh, at a certain point said, you cannot go on as an Iranist unless you have very sound Sanskrit and here is a scholarship to study with a Dutch Sanskritist for two years uh, in Amsterdam. And I said, no, thank you, sir. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, a lot of these languages, it, there, there isn't enough to uh, fill the first two pages of the New York Times, the fragments that are preserved from them. And I, I really, I was a, history, a historian. I benefited from uh, some of his uh, courses. He, for one year, he taught a course on Sasanian history, uh, which is not taught, any, I think, anywhere in the world. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, so I, I, I learned a great deal about Persian studies, Iranian studies through Richard Fry. Uh, other, I, the most organized lecture course I've ever taken was the one in Byzantine history. Uh, I, uh, Robert Lee Wolf taught it. Uh, I, I, I gained a good idea of what an historian does from uh, Wolf's excellent course in Byzantine history. Um, I. Uh, as I say, I took a, one of the fields for my generals was Byzantine history. I benefited uh, from, uh, I benefited a lot from the uh, introduction to philosophy course that I took at Harvard, um, which has made reading philosophy, not at a professional level, but in, in Arabic and Persian, um, somewhat easier for me. Especially as we, you know, we did Aristotle and Plato and all that stuff, which is so reflected in Islamic philosophy. After teaching at Princeton for 16 years, Professor Mutahida returned to Harvard as Professor of Islamic History in 1986 and soon thereafter became the director of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. We asked him about the state of Islamic studies at Harvard at that time. Islamic studies was at a very low end, really. They, um, first they had, uh, of course, Gib at a stroke, uh, and then uh, Nadav Safran was an intelligent man, but uh, he did modern Middle East. Uh, he was not quite of the large capacity 
that Gibb had. And uh, so um, in, in a way, uh, uh, there was a there was there was a vacuum in the, uh, you know, for for uh, uh, Islamic history concerns at Harvard, and uh, so I came. Uh, I came uh, at a time uh, when I could build up the department, and some of the people who now teach at Harvard were people put forward by me. Give at first wanted Nadav uh, to uh, be a heavyweight at Harvard. And I, I, he worked hard for Nadav's tenure. And Nadav uh, did not write as much after his first book about the Arab world, though he did write some. Uh, and um, uh, Gibb was a little disappointed. Uh, he wanted somebody who did the Arab world. Gibb, by the way, was a little bit prejudiced. He thought the Arab world was by far the most important part of the Islamic world. <laughs> and um, he once, uh, in front of me in a class, made fun of Persian poetry, which I didn't like. <laughs> this is Pro Professor Sir Hamilton Gibb. Anyway. And the center wandered, and as you say, one of these wanderings was caused by uh, uh, a fair amount of inattention to the department, by uh, to the center of Middle Eastern studies, by one director, and then uh, a little malfeasance on the part of uh, uh, Nadav. Well, it wasn't malfeasance; it was a little bit of deception, um, and so. Uh, when I came, uh, they, uh, they, I said, I do not want to be director by any of the Middle East Center, please, no. Uh, and so after one year, uh, they assembled a room of senior administrators who said, we need you to be director. Uh, and, um, I, and for the first two years of my directorship, I said, we're ha having no lectures on contemporary politics <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> and uh, I enforced that and it worked. People, large numbers of people came, including large numbers of people from neighboring universities like BU and um, uh, Tufts, etc. And I had them give speeches at the center and form study groups. We had a big, big movement of study groups to read uh, on more particular topics. Anyway, it, it, it worked out. The center really revived. I, I was very happy about that. I don't think anybody remembers, but <laughs> it was, yeah. We spoke to Professor Mutahida about some of his best-known publications, Loyalty and Leadership in an Early Islamic Society, which was his first monograph on the social bonds that created the structure of Buyid society in the 10th and 11th centuries, The Mantle of the Prophet, an account of the 1979 Iranian Revolution based on eyewitness testimony, 
Lessons in Islamic Jurisprudence, a translation of Durus Fir Idmir Usul by Muhammad Baqir al-Sadr, and his article, The Clash of Civilizations and Islamicists' Critique, in response to Samuel Huntington's famous Clash of Civilizations thesis. I remember, I remember once uh, you mentioning that um, Jakob Burkhardt's The History of the Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy uh, it, it was one of one of the most influential books uh, uh, for me. One, yeah, for you. And and could you tell tell us a little bit more about that, especially in light of your of your first monograph, Loyalty and Leadership? Yeah. Right. Well, um, of course, I think that. Uh, first of all, one has to uh, study uh, the emotions that people report about events. And uh, so uh, you have to understand those emotions in the languages in which they're expressed. Uh, and that, that there's never a hundred percent correspondence from an English word uh, to a, a Persian or Arabic word. Um, so you know, uh, the kind of uh, emotional resonance of uh, what you hear ha has to be uh, uh, sort of accounted for. But beyond that, uh, of course, we, we, we wouldn't be able to understand anything if we didn't believe there's some kind of universals that uh, we have uh, that, uh, as human beings so, so that uh, you, you can... Uh, empathize with people who are in a very different situation, different cultural uh, mix and so on and so forth. So I think it's uh, terrifically important, first of all, to report how people are viewing events from their own perspective. And so when I read the Chronicles, and they're very rich for the 10th century, uh, you know, including this, Islamic philosopher Miskoway, who was a considerable intellectual figure. Um, they're very rich, and Miskoway um, tells you, uh, he has d detail about people, which gives you some idea of what kind of people they are. They are. They, uh, uh, and I try to both give the uh, widespread terminology uh, in, from the primary sources, and also uh, to some extent to translate that into our own terminology. Um, so it's, uh, it, it is indeed uh, a history of a specific dynasty, but more particularly as perceived through uh, 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 the, the, the ideas expressed by people in, in, the, uh, in the period as recorded by the historians. Now we, you know, always one would like to get beyond the historian, but you know, it's hard to do that. So um, I try to um, talk about uh, s such, um, uh, such subjects as uh, um, uh, it, great change of character as understood in perhaps a Sufi sense, uh, 
uh, and uh, other things that are just attested to in the uh, texts. It's sort of perhaps more a history, uh, a history seen with emphasis on mores, on, on customs and uh, customary ways of speaking and expressing uh, certain kinds of emotion. I don't say that's the end of the historian's quest, but it's the place you have to start with because that's what the primary sources tell you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so was the, was loyalty and leadership then a, um, did you hope that the audience for loyalty and leadership would be more outside of Islamic history or? Yeah, I yeah. did. I did. I did. Uh, it's, um, I don't think it succeeded in that arena, <laughs> but yes, I, I did. Yeah. I thought it was uh, uh, an interesting way of writing history. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that strikes me about uh, loyalty and leadership is that you you take meticulous care to to um, provide your reader with with uh, clear and relatable definitions for Islamic terms like ummah um, yeah. or you know, uh, and and I think that it, it you know it's. That's what uh, what I suspected. It's pretty clear that you're trying to reach out to the, the the right. uh, perhaps you know students of European history or students right, of, right. of uh, Asian uh, and American history who are maybe not familiar with Islamic uh, civilization. No, I, I first I started. I wrote my thesis on the uh, administrative history of the Buyid Kingdom of Ray. This is the Ray is where Tehran is now, and uh, but I realized after that uh, I had in no way explained how such an administration could work without understanding the social terms and to some extent psychological terms of the people involved. So I made this very ambitious attempt, <laughs> and I've never published the administrative history. <laughs> Terrible. Well, uh, loyalty and leadership certainly won you enough praise and uh, uh, and, uh, and a wonderful prize too. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, I would love to ask more about the mantle of the prophet. Sure. I was wondering um, what inspired you, especially as a professor of Islamic history, to write this book that is often considered to be like a novel and especially at that time after the 1979 revolution? Yeah, well, I, I was driving back from New York to Princeton where I was teaching at the time. And I heard uh, this announced, this is the time of the Iranian revolution. They uh, announced um, the arrest of the doctor of the Shah and um, I vague, I knew who he was. I didn't know him personally. And uh, I suddenly realized this is a, a, an amazing uh, sort of movement uh, uh, that uh, uh, something, a lot of things are going on uh, that have to do with uh, long-term trends in Iranian culture. So, uh, so I sat down 
And I was lucky enough to be friends with a very, very kindly uh, mullah who helped me uh, put in the mullah background throughout. Uh, I mean, really a lot of educated Iranian engineers and so on and so forth did not have the slightest idea what the religious tradition was. <laughs> and, and, and it was clear to me that uh, I had to write a book that somehow explained this long-term uh, development of Iranian culture. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, two observations there. One is, um, you know, it, it never, it, you know, a central focus of Mantle the Prophet is Qom, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and the story of Ali Hashimi's sort of uh, uh, coming of age and, and into adulthood uh, around this, this life that exists, this, this, this world really that exists right. around Qom. That's correct. Um, and and, and for, for many students of, of you know, of uh, uh, Middle Eastern history and even Iranian history, I mean, you know, such focus is placed on the the great sort of uh, other sort of imperial cities of Iran, you know, Asfahan, uh, Tabriz, and um, and and Qum plays this critical role in the story of Ali Hashimi and how you unfold uh, Iranian history in the mantle of prophet. And I think that's, that's really important to, to understand that intersection between religion and politics in Iran. You mentioned hearing, uh, of, of the, the revolution on, on the radio yourself. And that's how you, how, that's how the story begins. That's right. right? The, in the mantle of the prophet, it begins with, right. with Ali, uh, Hashmi hearing uh, of the, you know, the, 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 the students, uh, taking right. over the radio station right. and and announcing and right. asking for um, direction from from Ayatollah Khomeini and um, right. and I, it, it, so I guess my question is you know it, it's a creative work right it's it's uh, historical yeah. fiction and you know it kind of to Miriam's point you know it's a different way of telling a very important story. I guess what was that? Was the the vehicle of of this this the story of Ali Hashimi? Is that is that to make it more relatable and, and broader to to reach a broader audience? Yes, in part, but it's also in part I think uh, a legitimate way to write history. <laughs> the uh, I uh, I guess is it's is it three volumes? There's a, a trilogy by uh, Dos Passos called USA um, and as a teenager I was very impressed by uh, he, he is using different voices of different people of different uh, persuasions uh, you know communists Christians whatever and uh, uh, and I, I think there is an attempt to recreate the voices of people of, of different persuasions. I have to say nothing in it is entirely made up. It's all based on the interviews that I did with people. My spoken Persian used to be pretty good. And uh, I, I, used, I spoke a lot with Iranians who lived through these events. And from that was able to construct, to construct people who, who participated 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 2003, you yeah. published um, Lessons in Islamic Jurisprudence. Right, right. You know, you've always worked in the subfield, of, I guess we could call it, of Shi'i studies or Shi'ite studies. Yes, right, right. What brought you to, to uh, publish Lessons in Islamic Jurisprudence? Well, I, uh, you know, I've always been interested in the question of uh, uh, what I'm going to call comparative scholasticism. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that um, there is a resemblance between, say, European scholasticism in the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, uh, Islamic scholasticism, perhaps even Chinese scholasticism, and Buddhist uh, scholasticism in, in uh, some other places. Um, it's a faithful uh, yet strongly interpretive way of presenting high religious belief, making it, of course, make, making use of things like logic and so on and so forth. Uh, I, I, as a boy, I read, trying to push myself beyond my understanding, I read a wonderful book on scholasticism and Gothic architecture uh, by a very famous scholar, and I can't remember his name now. But anyway, uh, and it's always interested me how fine-spun, intricate versions of belief are related to the rest of culture and how coherent they are in themselves and so on and so forth. And so um, I was immensely attracted by uh, the higher learning among Shi'is. Uh, and I, the core of it really was the jurisprudence of Islamic law. The Shi'ite development of jurisprudence in Islamic law is particularly interesting and not well known in the West. Uh, so I decided to get one of the core texts used to train mullahs in <laughs> now, of course, I sh this is a text for people like, you know, 12 to 15 or something like that. It's not one of, they, they go on, scholasticism deepens as you get older. And who knows, maybe before I die, I'll translate a more advanced book of the same nature. I think they're important to understand certain aspects of culture. And they're sort of interesting as intellectual exercises in themselves and what do you do with a revealed law obviously jews christians muslims buddhists everybody has to deal with this question somehow and buddhists may not entirely fit in but anyway there is buddhist scholasticism i'm i'm excited to ask you this question roy and sort of this this capacity of uh, you know this podcast uh, because I also teach uh, um, your clash of civilizations and Islamicist critique right this this article published in the Harvard Middle East and Islamic Review uh, I think in 1993 is when it was published or something it's one of your most downloaded articles from academia.edu uh, and um, I guess, I mean, this might seem like a simple, uh, straightforward question, but I, I really want to know what you have to say is, you know, what, 
why did you write it? I mean, why did your, your you know. The Dean of the Divinity School, there's a story behind it. The Dean of the Divinity School invited uh, us, uh, this was before Bill Graham was Dean, it was previous Dean of the Divinity School, invited us to a luncheon at his house in which there were, there was uh, Sam Huntington and um, the senior fellows of, uh, of uh, not the society fellows, but. Uh, Is it the junior fellows? Yeah, I, I was a junior fellow. Oh, yeah, at that time I was not, uh, that's, anyway, the senior fellows of some organization <laughs> <laughs> that, that was run by uh, my, my, uh, friend, the the the, the, the then dean, and um, just arbitrarily they assigned me to make a comment after Huntington gave his um, exposition on the the uh, the, uh, the clash of civilizations, and I knew Huntington slightly, not very well, uh, and we'd never had a crossword, but. I did work hard on thinking about the paper. I delivered my critique and I said, these are only superficial things and Huntington is uh, a brilliant man and all, all of that. Uh, but Sam Huntington, Sam, immediately smelled <laughs> there might be more trouble here. And he said, if that's, those are just minor objections, <laughs> I don't know what to say. And uh, he, uh, he got very angry. And um, then because he was so angry, uh, I uh, typed up a final version of the, art of the thing as an article. And I took it to Sam's office and s said, uh, Sam, this is what I wrote, and if you disagree, please tell me. And Sam called me up and said, who would publish such garbage? Uh, he was furious, furious. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and um, gradually uh, through my later life at Harvard, Sam and I got recon reconciled, but he, he really beyond, he said, there's only one place where you corrected me where I was wrong, uh, he, uh, I guess, was rather thin-skinned. And uh, mm -hmm. so uh, I was sorry about that. I mean, he's a, he's a, uh, he was a great figure in the social sciences and all of that. But the, the critique was not something that sort of uh, came out of fantasy. It was all very, very based on, <laughs> on what Huntington said. Uh, and I, it was no, in no way rude, in no way whatsoever rude. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I uh, don't know what to say. Sam, I guess, was a little thin-skinned. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Please. So I mean, it just—I'm—that's a great story. I—I I, I, uh, didn't know about that. But you know, I have to say, having uh, taught, you know in concert right the uh, huntington's article version uh and then your response to my for my students uh i mean my students are always sort of amazed at how 
polite you are in your critique. I'm of, glad that comes across. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the sense that, you know, I, I think there's, you know, it's a, it's, it's, you really take them to task. I mean, because you bring uh, solid, uh, you know, empirical evidence, right? Uh, 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 you know, you even say that you very much hope he remains an, an empiricist. Yeah. Uh, and you, you bring important uh, uh, um, uh, uh, theorists of, of not just the social sciences, but even the sciences into the conversation like Thomas Kuhn. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's really important for, for uh, sort of understanding the time and place of the clash of civilizations um, and your particularly your response to it. Um, and I, I guess that sort of leads me to the, to a follow-up is just sort of, you know, looking back now, you know, uh, 30 years on the clash of civilizations, um, you know, is there anything different you would say, or, or in terms of your critique, or does it, does, does it still hold the same? Today? I, don't, I don't think Huntington's analysis uh, about there being civilizational groupings has, uh, it's true in a way, I never said it was entirely wrong. There certainly are civilizational groupings, but uh, what he outlined has not proved to be largely correct. He, he uh, it, there was a foreign policy aspect to this, which uh, of course in Huntington you expect. <laughs> he, he thought the United States was too involved overseas. I mean, he had been a big supporter of the Vietnam War. <laughs> then he decided the United States was too involved overseas. And he, he was backing down by saying, you know, we all, only important relations are with European countries who are like us and, uh, and not with uh, this third world, which is not like us. Um, and uh, this is some truth to that, but it's not the overall picture of foreign policy since, uh, particularly, I mean, things like the rise of China <laughs> make, make, make it absurd to talk about, uh, you know, we only should have relations with European countries and so on. That was selections from our conversations with Roy Mutahida, Gurney Research Professor of History, former director of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies and founding director of the Adwarid bin Talal Islamic Studies program at Harvard University, as he looked back on his development and career as a scholar of Islamic history. Please join us for subsequent episodes with professors William Graham and Ali Asani on the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Mariam Kazmi. Thanks for listening.